Hi friends, I'm Carissa, one of your fellow Lake viewers, back for our final installment of our study of Ephesians. Today we get to explore the art of grappling, why clothes really do make the woman, or man as the case may be, and why the term take up your space has biblical connotations. Glad you made it here for the fun. Our text today starts with a finally. Paul has just finished reminding his readers of the new way of operating with one another called mutuality. Allison did such an amazing job last week of explaining how Paul's household codes, relationships between husbands and wives, children and parents, slaves and masters, were socially groundbreaking. These were not just drums in the worship team or bring your coffee into the service kinds of adjustments. This was a whole new way of being for people of the Jesus way that systematically offered agency to the vulnerable and required those with power to become servants instead of wielding power over others, which the Roman culture gave them permission to do. Paul now ends his letter knowing that struggle is afoot. And he's looking for a way to rally the troops, so to speak. And to do this, he employs imagery that will stir his listeners to action. And so we start today with a finally. We're almost there, folks. Paul is coming in for a landing, and he's going to do it with a splash. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Tychius, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Ephesians 6, 10 to 24. A struggle that is not against flesh and blood, but we are flesh and blood. So how do we characterize what we're up against? When I was a kid, 
we had these things called VCRs. And my siblings and I had a VHS tape of animated Bible stories. The only story I remember was the one about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And the only reason I remember it vividly is because the devil was portrayed as this dude with purple hair, except instead of normal eyes, he just had white blank space, no iris or pupil. It was the creepiest thing. The story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness though, and you can read about it in Matthew 4 or Luke 4, it's a good entry point to grasp the list of evil that Paul gives in Ephesians 6. Jesus' struggle in the wilderness wasn't with a flesh and blood enemy, but with a spiritual enemy that was intent on turning him away from the sustenance of God, trust in God's promises, and the calling on his life. It was a spiritual cage match during which Jesus engages an unseen enemy, despite what VHS Bible cartoons had me believing. But sometimes we need a, a tangible image to help us envision what a struggle with these unseen entities might entail. And Paul's word choice in verse 12 helps us here. The Greek word used by Paul that is translated struggle, or in some translations, wrestle, is pale, and it describes a close, physical, scrappy encounter, the kind of grappling that soldiers might do in hand-to-hand -hand combat, or that Olympians might do on a wrestling mat. In other words, this isn't the brave heart, hold the line kind of struggle. The kind of struggle Paul is alerting his listeners to has us low to the ground, circling our opponent, trying to stay square, engaging right up close, so close, in fact, that we can hear the whispers that desire nothing more than our faltering and failure. Sort of like cancer cells whose only task and capability is to multiply, 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 these four enemy categories of evil and their wily whispers are laser focused. Steal, kill, destroy. So if you were caught up with this wily enemy in the wilderness, what sorts of temptations would they put in front of you? What can feel true when you hear it that actually steals your joy, feeds your selfishness, or destroys your sense of identity? I'm not enough. If God really loved you, you wouldn't have to deal with this. No one on your team actually likes you. You're a burden to everyone in your life. Does God even care what happens to me? You missed your chance. You might as well give up. Whispers of a wily opponent. One of the hardest aspects of this struggle is that we often only notice the evil at play once it has accomplished its goal. We've often been in that grapple with the hot breath of the opponent whispering, dehumanizing, death-dealing, alienating lies in our ears without even realizing it. Until we wake up and wonder why our hope has disappeared. Why we can't do or say anything kind to anyone we live with. Or why we're overwhelmed by apathy or disgust towards ourselves. That wily devil, he hit the starting bell and didn't even tell me. 
Examining the substance of the struggle on a personal level is important, but so is recognizing that these items of evil in Paul's list, these powers and principalities, are at work in institutions as well. As Allison helped us consider last week, Paul was not instructing the believers to be about a new way on solely an individual front. He was also pointing to the gospel's work of dismantling unjust social structures. This is how it's always been done. Didn't fly in light of the gospel mystery. Eugene Peterson, who, as a side note, reminds me of my granddad. Mr. Peterson had one of those smiles that it just made you feel like everything was going to be all right. Anyways, Peterson warns us that institutions are a ready breeding ground for evil. Not because institutions in and of themselves are evil, but because their anonymity provides cover for evil. Unfortunately, the church is not immune to this phenomenon either. Maybe you remember the hashtag MeToo movement that exploded a few years back. And maybe you also heard about a similar hashtag that started alongside it, hashtag church two. The church two movement gave people who had experienced sexual harassment and sexual violence within the institutional church a place to speak up and speak out. And the numbers were astonishing. As an institution, the church has to reckon with its culpability in being a haven for injustice. It doesn't mean that the church as an institution is evil, but we have to grapple with the crafty evil that breeds in the anonymity of its underbelly. When it comes to the struggle we're up against, wily opponents are working behind the scenes to present us with palatable evil. Evil that doesn't look like evil until it has destroyed people's lives, our relationships, our hope, our sense of belovedness by God. So how is it that we ought to practice engaging this struggle? Paul gives us a clear and satisfying therefore to help us out in verse 13. Therefore, he says, because of all of this crafty evil, take up the whole armor of God. This is the imagery and the strategy he gives believers as the struggle continues. And it's also a way for Paul to sum up all that he's been relaying throughout the book of Ephesians. Truth, righteousness, peace, the gospel, and faith are themes that Paul is now gathering together in this image of a prepared soldier. And as we know from my VHS library, Using an image connects emotions to the ideas, and his listeners will be more likely to remember what he said. On that note, remember what it was like when you were a little kid getting all rugged up to go play in the snow? Like a really little kid. And your mom or dad or grandparent or teacher had to help you get all your gear organized. When you finally had your snow pants on and hooked over your boots, and then your jacket on and maybe a toque, then came the scarf that got wrapped around your forehead and then around your mouth and neck, and then you finally held out your hands like this, sideways, with all your fingers tight together, waiting for each of your mitts. What a production. But then you were ready, and your parent or friend who had helped you out exclaimed, okay, there, off you go. 
Keep this image in your mind as we consider Paul's description of the armor of God. We'll come back to it later. Clothing does a lot more work for us than just covering up the important parts. It also keeps us warm, protects us from injury, identifies us with a group of others, expresses our emotions or our thoughts on certain subjects. Paul has used the imagery of clothing to talk about throwing off the old self and clothing yourselves with the new self. And now he uses it again to talk about the whole armor of God. Paul is likely drawing from two places with his imagery of armor. First, he's probably calling to mind the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Isaiah has several examples of Yahweh, the God of Israel, being clothed with armor, wearing righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment in Isaiah 11. And in Isaiah 59, God wears righteousness and justice as his body armor and places a helmet of salvation on his head. So Paul's armor of God image isn't totally original. And one scholar offers this compelling comment. He says, the Christian is urged in verse 11 to put on the panoplia, the full armor of God, by which is meant not merely the armor that God gives, but the armor that God wears. It's a who wore it first kind of moment. We wear God's armor to follow and identify ourselves with him and with the things he's about, which leads us to the second place Paul is drawing this imagery from. As a prisoner of the Romans, Paul would have observed daily the dress of Roman soldiers. Soldiers were recognizable. They had similar dress that identified them and spoke to who their loyalty belonged to. Do you see where I'm going with this? Belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, good news shoes, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, and sword of the spirit. Clothed with these, our identity and loyalty are clear. Put on the full armor of God to remind yourself and others who you belong to and what you're ready for. Now, do you ever wonder what it was like to get up and get the day going as a Roman soldier? Like, what was their morning routine? I imagine that some pieces of their armor the soldier could deal with on their own, but... Like, did they ever find themselves knocking on the bunk next door for some help with a, you know, a stuck zipper on their body armor? Of course, I'm being a little facetious, but I actually think the imagery lends itself to this. Putting on God's armor takes a community. Just like three-year-old you required assistance to get your snow gear on in the right order, so we sometimes need the help of our fellow Jesus followers to fasten our belt of truth and lace up our good news shoes. In fact, verses 16 and 17 say we are to take the shield, the helmet, and the sword. Take it from where? Or maybe from whom? I wonder if this isn't a cue that having someone who hands us our mitts and toque after we've pulled our snow pants over our boots is perfectly acceptable. I'd even say that some days, that wily opponent has me so turned around that I forget that I even have access to a belt of truth or a shield of faith. 
And it's only the reminders from my friends as they hand me my helmet and adjust the buckle on my belt that clue me back in and get me bundled up for the struggle. Prairie snowbanks or flaming arrows of the enemy, bring them on. So what's this all for again? Now that I've got three layers of pants on and only my eyes are exposed to the outside world. All right, now we fight. Or, er, what? Wait, is that the action word Paul uses 47 times in this text? Nope, it definitely isn't. Paul says now, with God's own armor cinched and fastened and in hand, now we stand our ground. This is interesting, right? Four times, not 47, Paul uses variations of the Greek word translated to stand or to withstand. He does not seem to suggest to his audience that they start running around looking for a fight, digging up victories or accumulating more territory. Stand your ground, take up your space. And what ground is that exactly? Why isn't it necessary for this new community unified in Christ to start taking new territory? It's because the ultimate wrestling match is already over. The ground they are standing on has already been secured. Truth, righteousness and justice, peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God, all of these alive and available in the believers, Christ in you, the hope of glory. These are evidence of the ultimate finish. Jesus is Lord. Paul spent the whole first half of his letter to the Ephesians declaring this reality. And now, finally, at the end of his letter, it's like he's coming back around to it. Friends, he says, don't forget who you are and whose you are. Something mysterious has happened. It's called the gospel of peace, and it means that you used to have to fight your way through the land, and now all you have to do is resist giving up any of the ground you're standing on. Stand firm, because where you stand is rightfully yours, because of God's grace and Christ's obedience. All that's left to do is resist, and that's what the armor is for protection against attack, not for going on the offensive against the enemy. Eugene Peterson says it this way, we live neither on the defensive nor on the offensive, but take our stand as Christians, acting and believing out of who we are in Christ, neither in panic before the enemy nor in a crusade against it. Live in the really real, says Paul. You are all the manifestation, the visible evidence of the hidden mystery of the gospel of Christ, which is that God has put everything back together, back into right relationship. He's setting the world right again. Jesus, the Christ, has made a way. Now we have to live as if that's true. Make it visible. Do you feel your heart rate going up? That's what Paul is going for. He is strategically using this last bit of his letter to get the hearts and the emotions of the people involved because the powers and principalities will try to make you believe that what is real isn't actually real. And so armor up. 
the struggle remains, and it still has a cost to it. I like how New Testament scholar Lynn Kohick sums up what the armor does and doesn't offer us. As the early believers knew well, the armor of God does not protect against suffering, nor does it preserve a believer from a painful death. The armor is not a good luck charm that keeps sadness at bay or misfortune from entering a believer's life. The armor strengthens believers as they encounter the sorrow, pain, misfortune, and injustice that characterize the present evil age. By remembering what is true, by holding to what is just, by listening to the Savior's word of peace, Believers together in the church can withstand the evil forces that seek to destroy all goodness and hope. God's armor does not prevent the struggle, but it will allow us to come out standing on the other side. Maybe at this point we need to pause and to wonder together about how this practice of armoring up, of meeting the struggle with resistance, really plays out. Life has brought a few struggle and resistance moments my way lately. One of them came as I sat with a friend on the phone. She's a youth worker in a big city, and she's really feeling the struggle of despair these days. She cannot find hope anywhere. And though her head knows all the right answers, her experience of God and her own life feels completely empty and lifeless. The struggle. The whispers of a wily opponent. I felt inadequate to speak to her despair. I was desperate not to hand her any pithy, over-positive responses. I wanted her to know that I believed her and was willing to sit with her exactly where she was. But I also didn't want her to get swallowed up by the cosmic powers of this present darkness. So I prayed. And the Spirit gave us one idea. One tiny act of resistance to take up the space that Jesus says is ours. And it was this. Light a candle. Light a candle every time you sit down to eat a meal to declare to yourself and to the unseen world that Christ is present in you. Resist. Live as if what is true is true, even if you don't feel it. Stand firm. The struggle has been dogging me personally as well these days. My space has been inundated with flaming arrows in the form of that critical inner voice intent on making apathy and sadness and loneliness and shame the truest things about me. And at times, the best I've been able to do is to rely on others to struggle on my behalf. To let the truth that others know and the faith that others have withstand the attack on my behalf. I have actually said those words out loud. I will defer to the faith of my friend. Her shield will protect me today. Her belt of truth will hold things together for me. The body of Christ doing its thing, standing our ground, turtling our shields of faith together to quench the flaming arrows coming at us. One more real-life example, one that brings together the personal and institutional struggle and calls us not to turn a blind eye to the way institutions provide that haven for evil that impacts real people in real ways. 
I follow an Instagram account called Black Liturgies, a writer named Cole Arthur Riley, who creates a space where she says, Black words live in dignity, lament, rage, and hope to the glory of God. I follow her because her liturgies and prayers both disrupt and comfort me. She experiences God, prayer, and justice differently than I do. I also follow her because listening to the firsthand voices of people of color brings me closer to what the struggle feels like from where they stand. This week, Riley posted in preparation for the Chauvin trial verdict. Derek Chauvin is the white law enforcement officer who killed George Floyd, a 46-year-old Black man, nearly a year ago in Minneapolis. The Black community was waiting this week, some individuals saying they could hardly breathe as they did so. Because a guilty verdict would mean that the evil of racism hidden in the institution of policing would be acknowledged for what it is, even if the work of dismantling it surely wouldn't be over. I think Riley's post was a beautiful example of putting on the armor of God, expecting the struggle, readying to resist the attack and the whispers from the wily opponent that were sure to come, no matter which way the verdict went. Steal, kill, destroy. This was one of the slides she posted. A set of four statements. My dignity cannot be diminished. The helmet of salvation. My pain is not a burden. My protest is holy. The shield of faith. Lament is not despair. My tears are worthy. The belt of truth. I deserve to be safe. I will listen to my body. The breastplate of righteousness and justice. The act of preparing for this week's verdict by speaking these statements over herself and inviting others to do the same was Riley's move of God-armored resistance. What does your list sound like from where you stand? What space have you been sharing with the whispering grappler across from you that maybe you don't need to be? Friends, this is a lot. Paul may be at the end of his letter, but he doesn't come to a rolling stop. Let me state for the record that the art of grappling and of armoring up and standing firm does not have to be an ultra-serious endeavor at every turn. In fact, I think there's wisdom in applying as much whimsical energy as we can muster towards it. I watched my brother play a lot of hockey growing up. And one of my favorite things was observing how he approached opponents in the face-off circle. He was a smaller guy than most others out there, and often when he was up against a tough or an especially mouthy face-off opponent, I would see him flash that guy a big grin right before the puck dropped. He just smiled right in his face as if he couldn't be enjoying himself more. Whimsy with a side order of spiritual cheekiness. Yes, I just coined that term. You're welcome. These might throw off our wily opponent more than anything. And nobody says you can't have a little fun while standing your ground. So we're at the end of our journey through the book of Ephesians. And it has been so great. Thanks for coming along with us for the ride. 
It's so fitting that we've been exploring this letter, which is all about the church, with you, our church, our community. In fact, you're the location where I personally have been practicing my salvation and learning what it means to live the eternal kind of life for over 20 years. And I'm really, really grateful for you. Now, Ephesians started out, remember, with that grand spiritual reality, the capital R reality, that God has been working out salvation for the world through Christ from the beginning of creation, from before the beginning of creation. And then Ephesians tells us that this reality is revealed in the community of the church as we participate in the summing up of creation by welcoming and living in unity with those who are different than us. Christ has broken down the walls of hostility. Then Paul paints a picture of what this looks like. It means taking off the old self, the self ruled by our own desires, and replacing the old ways with new ways of being in the world. Being kind, tender-hearted, practicing forgiveness. And this has implications for the way we live in our domestic lives, as we learned last week. We live in loving mutuality with one another, and it ends up transforming the whole world. Ephesians has taken us down this funnel, the large reality that upholds and rules the world, right down to how we should live in our everyday lives with those who we know best. But all of this begins and ends with prayer. Eugene Peterson says the beginning of Ephesians is like a geyser. It opens up with this amazing burst of prayer and praise. And then it's like the prayer goes underground, like an artesian well, bursts back up again in Ephesians 3, and then calls back again at us at the very end of Ephesians. Listen to these verses from chapter 6. Pray in the Spirit at all times with every kind of prayer and supplication. Keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all of the saints. Pray also for me, so that when I speak, a message may be given to me to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it boldly as I must speak. Prayer is the beginning and end and the center of this whole letter. Prayer is the what, the where, the when, the how, and the who of practicing our salvation. If, through all these months that we've been sharing spiritual practices with you, you have picked up one habit, I hope it is prayer because prayer is at the center of who we are. In fact, I've heard this said about prayer. Birds fly, fish swim, and we pray. Prayer is the way that we become present to God who is always present to us. It is the way that we take the spiritual reality that Paul talks about in chapter 1 and then look at our own circumstances through the lenses of that reality. We thank God for the ways that Christ is bringing transformation to us and in our worlds. We root ourselves in the truth that God has already completed the work of salvation in the heavenly realms, and we pray that it would take root in the places where it seems like evil is winning. 
It's the way that we connect with one another by asking God to transform us so that we can live in unity. It is how we stand with one another when situations seem overwhelming, when there is nothing we can do to fix things. Prayer is how we persevere, how we sit with pain, how we work justice, how we rest, and how we play. Prayer includes all of life. It is the beginning, the end, and the middle. So what this means is that any part of our life can be an entry into prayer. It might feel overwhelming to think of praying at all times, as Paul tells us to do in these verses, but the encouragement hidden in that is that prayer is also possible at all times, which means you can start wherever you're at. You can start if you've never prayed before. You can start again if you feel like you're far from God and it's been a while since you've prayed. You can keep going if you've been praying for years. Prayer is for all of us. And here's some of the best advice that I've heard about prayer that all of us can use. Keep it honest, keep it simple, and keep it going. So start with where you're at. Don't feel like you have to dress things up. You can speak in your own words and then just keep going. Don't give up. Try new things. Just do it. Just pray and start praying with whatever material you have in front of you. Pray when you're grateful. Pray when you need something. Pray for people who pop into your mind. Pray when you're mad. Pray when you're happy and when you're worried. Pray when it feels like you have nothing to use to pray. Use any and every moment as an opportunity for prayer. In this passage though, the in, the material that Paul gives to his readers, is to pray for one another. As Carissa said, evil thrives in places where people can hide in anonymity. And prayer is an antidote for this because when we pray, we don't just pray broadly. We pray for specific people and specific situations. We wrestle we grapple with prayer. We grapple in prayer with the real-time issues and feelings and human beings that are present to us right now in our lives as they are. So this week, pray for a saint in our community. And just so you know, a saint is not someone who acts like a saint, who has it all figured out, but a saint in the book of Ephesians is someone whose identity begins in the spiritual places, who was chosen before the foundation of the world, which actually means everyone is included. But in our reality, to make it specific and to do the real work of grappling in prayer, we're going to limit our choice of saints to this community, to this expression of chosen people. So reach out to a saint and ask them what you can pray for, and then do some grappling on their behalf in prayer. Are they feeling lonely in their marriage? Are they feeling like it isn't worth it? Pray. Are they afraid and hopeless? Pray. Is their faith shifting and changing? Are they struggling with doubt or just shifts in their understanding of God and of faith? Pray. 
Are they having a hard time taking off their old self? Are they having a hard time living out their true identity in their everyday situations? Pray. Is there something they need? Do they need provision or healing or a new perspective? Pray for them. And when you pray for them, I encourage you to give that prayer all of your attention, your whole self. Even if it's just for a moment, when you enter into prayer for that person, turn your attention to them. Bring a picture of their face to your mind. Open your heart to them and to God. Ask God how and what you should pray, and then just do the best you can to do it. Don't use cliches, make it specific. Pray for that person, for that situation. Think and feel deeply. Enter into prayer. Pray for a saint, but also ask for prayer. Paul asks for prayer in this passage. You see, prayer is a way that we are brought together in the presence of God. It's the great leveler because none of us has our lives figured out. We need one another and we need one another's prayers. And so as we pray for one another, it builds us up as a community. Prayer knits us to God and also to one another, but it requires mutuality. It takes humility. It requires submission. We need to ask for prayer. As Carissa said, sometimes she needs her friends to help her don her spiritual armor or even to wear it on her behalf. And we all need that sometimes. We are companions in this journey. And one way we walk alongside one another is to pray for one another. So don't just pray for others. Ask for prayer yourself. We need to ask. Life begins and ends with prayer. Salvation happens as we grapple in prayer. So just do it. Start praying or start again or keep at it, but pray. Keep it honest, keep it simple, and keep it going. Use what's right in front of you as the material for prayer, including praying for someone in our community and praying something specific for them. And then ask for prayer. Remember that we work out our salvation together, not alone. And we do that 